We come to our first Bible reading, and we're in the book of Joshua, and it's Joshua chapter 3. So it's under the title of Crossing the Jordan. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the word of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zerathan. While the waters flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Death is never fun, is it? I know it might seem a bit banal, but death always carries a nasty taste. We know for John that he's, he's gone to a better place, and I guess we're pleased for John that he's not been ill in, in hospital for any longer, but death for me always carries an unpleasant taste. 
because it's not how it's supposed to be. We weren't supposed to die. And death always carries this, this overtone of, uh, uh, of sin. It is unnatural. It's very natural, isn't it, in the world, but it's unnatural. It's not how God um, intended it to be. So uh, I find death overshadowing my thoughts in the, in the last couple of days. And so I want to start by thinking, asking you to think, when you stand on the edge of death, how are you going to cope? What is going to be your strength? What is going to be your reassurance? Because I think we tend to split our lives into two halves. It's very easy um, to split life into a secular half and a kind of spiritual half, and for those two um, to get separated from one another. So in kind of this half, in the, in, the, um, in, in the secular half, or in the spiritual half, you believe that God created everything. Um, but, but in this other half, this secular half, you go along with David Attenborough and everything they show on the BBC. And, and you believe that um, everything evolved. It, it's so easy to kind of be double-minded and to believe two things at the same time. In this half, you kind of believe in the spiritual half. You kind of, you, you believe in the fact that um, all things work together for the good of God. And you believe it, but in the, but in the secular half where, where things are really hard, uh, you don't believe it. Or you find it harder to believe. And in this half, you believe that, that, that God is in control. But in the other half, most of the time, you just act as if you're in control. There's a problem if you're struggling to concentrate, then just grab one of the, um, the sheets or some sermon notes on the edge. They're there and there. This is where I do my stewardess bit. Okay, they're there and there and there and there and at the back. Um, and uh, there's a word search. We call that the sacred secular or the, or the spiritual and, and secular divide that, that, that goes on in our mind. And the question I guess I want to, want to ask you is, is, which is the real one? Which is the real one and which the pretense? Because if this is the pretense and you're just pretending to believe, then what's going to happen when you die and you face uh, Jesus as judge face to face? You, you will have nothing on, on which to stand. But if the other one is the pretense, that actually you are a Christian, but in your week you're doing the pretense of being a non-Christian because it's easier and it invites less ridicule, then there's an equal danger because Jesus says, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be uh, ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the, with the holy angels. We can be very easily two-minded, double-minded people, have two spaces in our mind. There's the spiritual space which we do on... Uh, Sundays and Wednesdays and the secular space, which is the rest of the week. And what does the Lord do? The Lord doesn't put up with this situation. What he does is he puts us through hard times to cause those two worlds to collide. Gives you hard times in, 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 the, in the secular realm uh, to cause us to recognize that we are going to need to, uh, to draw on our, our spiritual resources but ultimately, these, these, these two halves of our minds, these two aspects of our life, they are going to suddenly crash together when you approach your last few weeks and your last few days. 
because at that point they are going to become the same reality. At that point, you need to know what are you standing on as you face death. So a good preparation for life and for death is to make sure that we have these two halves of our mind together, um, that we reconcile that, that God is in daily life. And we're going to do that today by looking at, at uh, Joshua chapter 3, Joshua chapter 4. So uh, the writer uh, William Williams wrote, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Pilgrim, uh, um, and the last verse, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. What does he mean? Um, he thinks uh, that treading the verge of Jordan is a picture of, a picture of death uh, and arriving in the new creation. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, that's Jesus. Land me safe on Canaan's side, songs of praises I will ever give to thee. So it is a tempting parallel to say that after the, uh, the, the rescue from, uh, uh, from Israel, uh, from uh, Egypt, uh, through the Red Sea, uh, is like our salvation, that their wilderness wanderings are like our life now, uh, and their entry into Canaan um, is like our going to glory. I don't think it's quite that simple. Because after Israel's rescue from Egypt, they've had the wandering. Now they've had the promise and the commissioning. We saw that the last couple of weeks. Now they enter into their salvation properly. But there are still battles uh, to be fought uh, before they possess the land. And only then when they've uh, fought the battles uh, do they have rest. Do they have the fullness uh, of their salvation. So this step that they take... Crossing the Jordan is a bit like our, our entry into salvation. It's the first step, um, but there are steps still to go. And let's just learn some of the lessons uh, quickly, you know, if we can, as briefly as we can, of what happens along the way. Well, the first thing to note is that the Lord leads the way. The Lord's presence goes with them and leads the way. The ark of, of the covenant is, uh, is the symbol of the Lord's presence. contains two copies of the law. And those copies of the law and a couple of other things are covered by what was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And that's the place where the priest would um, splash the blood on the day of atonement once a year. So the Lord is present with his people because the broken law, this law, this covenant law that the people cannot keep is atoned for and has been atoned for by blood. And that's the, that's the basis on which the presence of the Lord goes with them. The Lord knows the way. The Lord will show them the way. Because as you read in the text, the people haven't been here before. Uh, They don't know the way to go. So the the presence of the Lord, the ark, will lead the way. People simply have to follow. And they're called upon to consecrate themselves. I don't think that so much means that they're making themselves holy. I think it's more like they are wholly committing themselves to the Lord. So we see in Joshua that the Lord's presence leads the way. And I guess you'll see where this is going, as you can, if you can make the New Testaments for yourself as we go along, and then we'll make them explicitly at the end. As they go along, the Lord's promise assures them. Joshua says to them, come here uh, and listen. 
This is how you know um, that the living God is among you and he's going to drive out the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites because the ark will go before you and the Jordan will dry up. So the Lord speaks to Joshua words of, words of promise. Part of God's plan is he's exalting Joshua as a, as a trustworthy leader so that the people will trust him. Joshua relays the promise to the people. And basically he says, if God can dry up the Jordan so that you can cross over, then how certain is it? How sure can you be? How confident can you be that he will expel um, all those enemies in Canaan? And then Joshua was told to choose 12 men. But as yet, we're not told what they're chosen for. It's one of those strange features of the, of the, of the, um, of the narrative. That it, it kind of goes forward and it comes back. You get little kind of flashbacks and you get little flash forwards. Why? Well, I think this is the reason why, to burn it into memory. To burn it into memory. It's, um, I bought um, David Suchet's, um, you know, the Bible read out loud. Uh, on CDs. It was half price at Eden. Don't know whether it's still there, but worth having. Um, and just started listening to it. I've only listened to a few bits and pieces. But there is a real difference in hearing the word of God spoken um, to reading it. And I guess when we, we as kind of uh, 21st century Westerners, we read it, it sounds all a bit repetitious. But if you imagine it in a storytelling culture, um, things are repeated uh, repeated for effect, repeated because it makes a good story, but repeated so it burns into memory. Burns into your memory, God does what he says. And burn into memory, God has rescued us and we are not to forget that. So uh, the Lord's presence uh, goes ahead, the Lord's promise assures them, the Lord's provision uh, amazes them. The people broke camp. Now, the Jordan is flood, in flood, uh, the account says, all during harvest. Do you remember it was the flax harvest? The flax was on top of the roof where Rahab hid the spies. It's the worst time of year to cross the Jordan. It's 100 foot wide and it's 10 feet deep. And it is a torrent. It's a, it's a steep river. It's not a nice kind of slow flowing uh, stream. And when the priests feet touch the water it stops and it piles up um, 20 miles away now the Jordan occasionally it happens that the Jordan dams it happened I think in 1297 it happened in 1927 uh, and I think on one occasion since uh, it's quite it's in a valley the, the sand falls in or the, the walls fall in and it blocks it, it it has happened but just reading this account again or as John read it uh, it, the water stood up in a heap. It doesn't sound like it was simply dammed. Even if it was dammed, it stopped the moment the priest's feet touched. And it came back the moment they stepped out again. It is an act of the Lord. And in the middle of that, did you notice the Lord of all the earth? It is the Lord who made everything, stepping in as Lord who made everything and doing a miracle, doing something unusual. So the priests stand with the ark um, in the middle until the whole nation has crossed. And they stand there fundamentally and, and most importantly with the ark. 
It is the blood-covered, broken law that makes it possible. See that? They've broken the law. They're people incapable of keeping the law. And the blood has covered it. It is the blood-covered law makes the presence of God possible amongst his people, makes it possible for them to cross the Jordan. But the account hasn't stopped. We, we move on into chapter 4. The, the Lord uh, is not simply interested to move them from one place to the other um, by a miracle. He is concerned that this miracle is remembered. It is important that this point in time, this act, is remembered. So let's, let's read on in chapter 4. Um, it's on page 218. Uh, if anyone wants to put it up, I'm just going to go through at this point to verse 7. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry it over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, um, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. Note, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It was the ark, you see, that did it. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Lord commands Joshua, if we just go back to the PowerPoint in a minute. The Lord commands Joshua and he commands the people to pick up 12 stones. They're to be placed at the first night's campsite. They are uh, a reminder. They are a physical reminder. This really happened. The Lord gave us dry ground, and here is a little bit of it. Here is a bit of, uh, of the dry ground pulled out uh, and set aside so that you can see it. And, and they're a visual aid. They're a prompt for, for, for young minds. When your children ask you what does it mean, then you've got an opportunity to tell them what God has done for you. Ah, you say, these stones, it's when we cross the Jordan. On dry ground, and they're a little bit of the dry ground. It really happened. God broke in. The river stood over there. But carrying on the, uh, uh, the, the stories for a minute. Pick up from verse 10. Now the priests who who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. People hurried over, uh, which you would, wouldn't you? There's kind of water piling up in an ever-increasing heap uh, 20 miles away. People hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. Men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over ready for battle in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. 
You remember they're going to go back over the Jordan when everything's finished because they've claimed some land on the east side. About 40,000 armed to battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. And that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood uh, in awe of Moses. Just back to the other PowerPoint for a minute. How many times now have we read this? I I give you that for homework and and for home groups. How many times is the story actually recounted, either in a promise or in a flashback or, or, or a flash forward? But the point is this. God wants the people to know that his mediator, his chosen leader, is, is trustworthy. He has appointed him. The Lord wants the people to know that he will do that he is what he has promised. So he's saying to them, don't forget don't forget what I've done for you. And then um, picking up at verse 18. No, actually, let's pick up a little bit further. Where did we get to? Got to 14, so let's pick up at 15. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest carrying the ark of the covenant Lord to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priest came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And no sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground then the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran in flood as before. And on the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you'd crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he'd done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we'd crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. There is a teaching point. Tell your children. Again, we get that instructions. When your uh, descendants ask their parents what happened, then the parents are to tell them and, and recount the story. But it's not just a children's story. Do you catch that at the end? He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. So that all the peoples of the earth won't have a sacred, secular divide in their mind because they'll know that the Lord is powerful, that he is the Lord of all the earth, that he breaks in to what we sometimes think of as the secular world whenever he wants to, and that you might always fear the Lord your God. So let's just pick up the meaning for us as as New Testament believers. If the ark is the, the symbol of God's presence... And God is present with them on the basis of the blood-covered broken law carried by the priests. Then for us, Jesus is the personal presence of God. God present in person. And he is the priest that brings the sacrifice. He is the, the, the sacrificial offering. He is the law um, that is fully kept. 
Isn't that amazing? And so he is the, the spotless lamb. Broken, slain for our crossing. And he leads the way. John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place. I will come back and take you. You know the way, Jesus says. Thomas says, no, we don't. (laughs) As he usually does. No, we don't, Lord. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth of the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you'd know my Father uh, as well. Jesus is the personal presence of God, and he leads the way. He leads the way home. And your response is to commit wholly to him, to consecrate yourselves to him. She's not to try and make yourself holy because you can't, but it is to commit yourself wholly. And Jesus is exalted in God's eyes. God exalted Joshua by demonstrating his works through him so that they would know he could be trusted. God has done the same through Jesus. God has exalted Christ through the miracles, but most of all, through his death and resurrection. So we have a leader who we can trust, a leader who speaks the words of God as Joshua did. He can be trusted. Peter said, Peter and the other apostles when they were arrested said, the God of our ancestors has raised Jesus from the dead. God has exalted him. God has exalted him to his own right hand on high. He can be trusted. And the assurance is this. With with Joshua leading them and having crossed the Jordan, the people then had confidence that God would drive out all, all their enemies ahead of them. So Jesus has died for you. Jesus has made it possible for you to cross from from death to life. There should be a a confidence then that he's going to drive out your inner Girgashite. Okay? Your inner Canaanite. You have enemies within and without. The world, the flesh and the devil. Your first enemy is, is your own sinful self. And if God has rescued you in Christ, how much more can it be trusted than to finish the work, to make you holy, to give you victory over the inner Canaanite who wants to uh, worship other gods and make other things their idols. And Paul says, I'm confident, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And one day Jesus will, will drive out all that is sinful and all that is the fruit of sin out of creation Altogether, out of our promised land. One day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And John in his revelation vision sees it like a city. And he says nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. See, one day Jesus will do what Joshua does. He will lead his people through to a place where all opposition is driven out. It's a great promise. Jesus provides the dry ground. In the Bible, water, sea, quite often symbolizes judgment, chaos and, chaos and judgment. Think of Noah, if you have any doubts about that. Water is judgment. And Jesus provides the opportunity for you 
to cross from death to life on dry ground without facing judgment. And here I think the key promise of the morning, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Jesus, by dying on a cross, makes dry ground for you to walk from death to life. In other words, you trust in him, what he's done on the cross. You move from from death standing um, in anticipation of God's judgment when you die to standing in anticipation of God's welcome uh, when you die. By trusting Christ, you can cross from death to life without getting your feet wet, without facing God's judgment. So what do we need to do? Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't have a part of your week where you forget that Christ in reality lived and Christ in reality, in physicality, died. Don't have a part of your mind which is secular, which thinks that things happen naturally and God can't do anything and a, and a part that is spiritual which, which kind of says God can only do spiritual things. Invisible things which you can't see. We need a physical reminder that the cross really happened. Uh, and Jesus has given us a physical reminder that the cross has really happened. It's called communion. It's called the, the Lord's Supper. Interesting, isn't it? They, um, they can't kind of pick up the bed of the Jordan and kind of carry it round with them, can they? They just pick up a little bit um, uh, of the bed of the Jordan and, and, and pick it up and, and put it somewhere where it can be seen. So, so we can't... Uh, in some way, carry around the cross of Christ with us, and there isn't enough to go around, but we pick up a symbol, uh, bread and wine. It's a physical symbol, a physical reminder of a, a physical reality, and we take it into ourselves in a very physical kind of way. We remind ourselves, don't forget that our, your spiritual life is based on a physical reality. That God the Son physically became human and, and physically died. If we forget that, then our physical hardships loom larger. The Lord who came, came in human physicality. The Jesus who came and was human walks with you today, walks wherever you go and walks with you tomorrow. And so when facing those physical troubles... And we show that we're interested in physical troubles by how much we pray for people who are ill rather than spiritual troubles. But we, may, we face those physical troubles in our lives with practical reminders. We face it with meeting by coming and meeting together and that gives you a, a, a tangible, touchable uh, reminder uh, that God is real. We meet it by reading the scriptures. is another tangible reminder. We meet it by prayer and by communion. So the God who split the Red Sea works for you today. That's the reality we have to try and get our head around. The God who split the Red Sea works for you today. The God who dried up the, uh, the, the torrent of, of the Jordan will walk with you through the swirling waters of everyday life, whatever they are.
But note, as for Israel, he doesn't choose. He doesn't choose to split the river every time they come to one. But he does ask them to remind, to remember and to remind themselves of when he did. And if the troubles out there stop you coming in here, then you cut yourself off from the physical reminders of the basis of our faith and your spiritual memory will fade and your faith will fade with it. So don't forget to remember, but also don't forget to tell the kids. You are your children's most important teachers. Um, I, I say this if you've got kids, particularly un, under 11. Um, if you haven't started already, you need to recognise that you are your children's most important teachers. So you bring them in here. <coughs> and occasionally, it might be right to bring them into communion and they can say, what does this mean? It, it happens twice in the passage. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You tell them. Or in our terms, we tell them uh, that Christ lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death for sinners. And in future, he says, when your descendants ask their parents, see, when your descendants ask your parents, it doesn't say when your descendants ask the priests or when your descendants ask the, you know, the teachers of the Lord. It's when the descendants ask their parents, what does this mean? You are your, you are your children's most important teachers and the future of the church depends on it. And so the key to your children's spiritual upbringing is to, is to bring them to the place where they can see Jesus worshipped and honoured and explained and communion taken. And then it's your, uh, your job to answer their questions. That's a really good book on the, on There's two more copies um, on the bookshelf there behind John. A fantastic resource uh, for helping bring up your kids in the Lord. You see, I, I meet this question or this, this sentiment quite a lot. So secular parents say, I'm going to provide my kids with neutral ground until they can make their own choices. So we do Wonderfully Made, um, of course. And I, I hear this quite a lot. That's what secular parents say. I'll provide my kids with neutral ground until they can make their own choices. But the problem is there is no neutral ground. For two reasons. One is your your children follow your choices. Uh, Whatever they see the most, they follow. So they follow your choices. Whatever that might be. So I want to say to parents who... And I seem to be having this conversation a lot... Um, come to church, if you can, all the time, every week. How much time is appropriate to, bring to come to church? Well, if you, if you wake up on a Sunday morning and you ask the question, shall we go to church today, shall we not? Well, we'll see what else we've got on. If instead there is not a question in your mind, but you wake up on Sunday morning and you say, we're going, you set for your children a standard and a routine which they're much like, more likely to follow. Um, for the rest of, your, uh, rest of their lives. There is no neutral ground. Your children follow your choices. And even if you abdicate them spending time with them, then they will get a sense of, a sense of values from somewhere else. Um, primarily, they'll get it from BBC or ITV or Netflix or YouTube. They will. Or they'll get it from their mates. 
There is no neutral ground. Spiritual parents say, I will teach them to follow the Lord so that when they're older they will continue. We've been suckered into some, some poor thinking. One says that children, we expect children to rebel and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, it's not true. The values that you instill in, in a child when, they, when they're small, they, they stay uh, in the main. Children don't have to rebel um, when they're teenagers. Yes, there's going to be, um, in teenager times, they're going to kind of reform all their ideas. But there's no reason you can't kind of walk that through with them if you do it in the right kind of way. And I forgot what the other point was. <laughs> Getting on my soapbox. Because it's important. Because it, it, it is parents' job to see their the, the kids grow up in the faith. And Joshua says this. Uh, at the very end of the book, where they come to the crunch of whether the people are going to carry on, he says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served over there before the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites. <coughs> so choose today who you, you're going to serve. Are you going to serve the Lord or are you going to serve the gods of YouTube? But as for me and, and my household, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So decide now what, what you're going to do and, uh, and then walk it out. We assume that kids will rebel, but it's not automatic and the Bible doesn't assume it. I think the Bible rather works on the assumption that if, that if they're taught well and brought up well, they will stay in the faith. So get to it. Have one of those books. And when it gets to the end, when you come, when you come facing death, when you get to the ultimate physical reality, don't forget. Don't forget. Jesus has crossed ahead of you. He's made the dry ground. He's made the ground dry. In other words, when you're facing death, you know that it is not judgment that awaits you. It is not a river to be waded through. It is dry ground. You can pass without judgment.